very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance Vitor Constancio, the former vice president of the European Central Bank and the former governor of the Bank of Portugal. Vitor, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to join your audience. It's, it's my pleasure. Vitor, I want to start off. How would you assess the European Central Bank's uh, efforts to fight inflation within the euro area? Uh, European rates, I think, you know, 4%. Very recently, were at zero. For much of your tenure uh, at the European Central Bank, they were at, at zero, and that is to fight inflation. How would you assess the sort of motivations to raise rates to fight inflation? And how would you assess their success so far? Well, of course, when uh, inflation uh, spiked, uh, in the case of the uh, euro area, mostly uh, due to uh, external price uh, spikes, uh, energy and food uh, stuffs, um, as the record uh, shows. When it spiked, uh, of course, uh, uh, the central bank had to uh, increase rates uh, uh, after a certain point in time. Initially, uh, seemed just like an external supply shock, which does not require per se an immediate reaction from monetary policy, as we know. But of course, uh, it uh, indeed uh, uh, increased even more and then started to impact uh, domestic uh, prices and the feedback loops uh, that uh, exist domestically, both in terms of firms uh, passing on or even exaggerating the increase in costs or wages try, trying to catch up, uh, which didn't happen uh, during a long time uh, in Europe. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it wasn't avoidable. Uh, so the um, the uh, the ECB started to increase rates uh, in uh, last July, uh, July of last year, uh, and the Fed in March uh, of last year too. Uh, I think the Fed was uh, very late uh, because inflation exceeded four uh, percent already in April uh, twenty one. Uh, and whereas in uh, in the euro area at that time in April nine twenty one was at one point six only, uh, and then the uh, ECB could have started in March uh, of last year instead of July, but that not that's not uh, really a dramatic uh, difference, uh, as you know, uh, uh, policy interest rate policy. Uh, uh, leads to a uh, time lag to really produce uh, produce effect. So uh, inflation is going down uh, everywhere, uh, uh, and uh, it's in a path that uh, would lead in time to uh, an acceptable uh, uh, inflation rate. And in that sense, uh, the monetary policy of the ECB has, uh, has provided uh, uh, an impulse uh, to that uh, disinflation that we see occurring. And so you said that uh, inflation in the euro area has a lot to do with rising energy prices, uh, not demand. Would you yeah. say that's true in the U.S. as well, or would you draw a distinction there? No, it, there is a strike decision, uh, distinction uh, Sorry, um, between the two processes. Uh, uh, indeed, uh, the uh, fiscal policy in the US was very expansionary even before the pandemic started. And then also after that, it was much more expansionary than in Europe. And that created a situation of uh, uh, demand pressure 
uh, that didn't exist uh, in Europe at that time. And uh, therefore, the 4.1 inflation rate in April of 21 was already due uh, to that. Very recently uh, at the ECB forum uh, in Sintra, there was a paper presented by Silvana Tenreiro that uh, illustrated that very well, uh, uh, using a model, of course, to uh, to uh, take out the uh, the uh, spikes in external prices, both for the US and uh, for Europe. It shows very well that in the US it was overeating due to domestic demand that started the process, not at all in Europe. And she had also another chart that was very illuminating, uh, using the same model, she analyzed what would be the core inflation in uh, the euro area and in the US if those external price spikes would not have occurred. And the result was very striking that core inflation right now in the euro area would be at 2.5 and in the US at 6%, uh, showing in fact the total difference of the two uh, processes uh, of uh, of inflation. So can you walk us through that? Because right now, uh, so headline inflation, which includes energy, spiked you know cl- close to ten percent in uh, yeah. Europe, and then gone down because yeah. energy prices have fallen. But core inflation is now at above five percent. So you know some people would call that sticky inflation, not including price of energy. What you're saying, you're referencing a paper. Can you elaborate on what you you found there? No, there is just uh, that uh, using a model. Uh, she uh, she calculates what would have been the uh, uh, core inflation rate now in both areas if the initial external price spikes of oil would not have occurred. And she finds the numbers I, uh, I mentioned, 2.5 for the euro area and 6% for, for the US, showing... Of course, that in the US, it's much more a question of domestic uh, demand and process than uh, in Europe. So if there was no oil shock, a natural gas shock, core inflation would have been muted in Europe. But there was, so core inflation rose. So uh, inflation broadens out from, even though the original shock is just from energy, what is the role, what is the job of central bankers when the if the cause of inflation uh, is energy completely outside of their control, but it broadens out to become a core inflation issue in demand, I mean, uh, c- certainly perhaps not to keep interest rates at zero and say, "Oh, it's just no. it's just demand. No. Right? It's just it's just energy, right?" No, of course not. Uh, and by the way, uh, in the euro area, the actual policy rate was the deposit facility rate, which was at minus zero point five or 50 basis points, uh, not at zero. And that was the real operational policy rate. But uh, you are right, of course, uh, that with that uh, scenario and the transmission from the external spikes to uh, domestic uh, inflation required a reaction of monetary policy by increasing rates. And so far, the uh, ECB increased uh, interest rates by 400 basis points or four percentage points, which in a year, uh, it's really a very quick, significant increase in policy rates. The US did a little a little more, but uh, just a little more. Uh, and so both central banks and others are reacting uh, properly to, uh, to, to the inflation challenge, uh, of course. 
Right. That makes sense. So do you think that the current 3.5% uh, interest rates for Europe is appropriate? Do you think the, the ECB should go higher? You know, if you were still sitting in that chair, what would your vote be towards for interest rates? I would go for uh, a pause after the level uh, it was reached uh, for uh, various reasons. The uh, monetary policy takes time to produce effect. Uh, and so one should uh, never just look to what is uh, right now, inflation, but should have a view um, about uh, the future. Uh, monetary policy is necessarily forward-looking, both because monetary policy takes time to produce effect, but also because the objective of uh, uh, monetary policy is, is defined for the medium term. It's not for the next quarter. Uh, so uh, monetary policy must be forward-looking and a view has to be taken about the, the future. And uh, so it is to be expected that the level already, already attained by interest rates will continue over time to produce uh, an, an, an effect on inflation. Secondly, uh, it seems that in Europe, a recession is coming. Uh, there are many indicators, uh, right now more so than in the US, although in the US there are also indicators that with time uh, a recession uh, will, will come. Uh, no one can be sure about the depth of that uh, coming deflation, uh, recession, but it's coming. Um, uh, we have in, uh, in the case of Euro area, uh, the same type of indicators you have in the US, uh, only more so, the inversion of the yield curve, the uh, leading indicators uh, pointing also to a negative growth uh, uh, recession, PMIs that are uh, below 50 uh, and have been in manufacturing below 50 for more than a year now. Uh, consistently. Uh, Germany is, has a very weak economy right now. Uh, Germany is a weak economy. Yeah, very weak. The weakest in the euro area right now uh, with very severe indicators. Uh, the manufacturing PMI at 40 uh, only. Retail sales at minus 8 compared with last year. Uh, factory orders minus 11 in May. So it's really uh, very weak and that will, of course, have spillovers for, for the other countries uh, in the euro area in view of the importance of, uh, of Germany uh, in the European economy. So all that points to a coming recession that in uh, our case, I think it will come this year uh, for sure. Uh, and that's uh, important to see what the effect will be uh, on uh, the, uh, including on the core on on the core inflation uh, by the way another uh, indicator which is uh, meaningful uh, in may and for the first time in um, years the producer price inflation was negative in the euro area just to give you a number in july of last year it was at 41 percent the producer price inflation, and in May it became negative. So that's an indication also that for the uh, industrial goods, uh, non-energetic uh, industrial goods, uh, this uh, implies that their price uh, 
uh, are com- is coming are coming down, and that's part of the core. Uh, just to uh, underline that aspect. Uh, and with the coming recession, also wages will become more subdued uh, than so far, even that uh, uh, on average uh, wages in, uh, in our case have been growing below uh, the inflation rate uh, so far, and that not uh, per se put additional pressure on the uh, inflation process. So all that leads me to uh, uh, be in favor of a pause, uh, a real pause, not necessarily the end, but a real pause, not a skip or any other <laughs> way of uh, naming it, a, a real pause, uh, to uh, see uh, what is coming. Uh, I think the numbers for September will be meaningful in that, in that respect, including for the core uh, inflation. And by the way, we should not... Uh, uh, overemphasize uh, the importance uh, of the core because, of course, in the end, what counts for the consumers uh, and for the economy is what is happening in uh, total uh, headline inflation, of course. Um, core is just uh, a way, and uh, in the case of just deducting energy and food from the total inflation is not a very good indication uh, or indicator of, uh, of core, the real structural component uh, of, uh, of inflation. Uh, both the Fed and the ECB have other ways of uh, uh, calculating the core, uh, and these other ways, uh, with uh, analysis of principal components or uh, dynamic factors, lead to a core inflation which is one percentage point below what is indicated just by deducting uh, the inflation uh, in uh, energy and food. So uh, one has really to uh, have more information, and I would, I would go for a pause for a little while uh, to see how uh, this uh, evolves for all the reasons I just uh, enumerated. Thank you for laying that out. You would uh, advocate for a pause. So the the U.S. economy has been surprisingly resilient to interest rate hikes, whereas the data you just laid out in Euro, it it shows uh, uh, not so much, and the Euro area could be entering a recession. How do you think the appropriate level of interest rates and a restrictive level of interest rates might change uh, with uh, Europe's uh, economic outcome. And if there is a mild recession in Europe, do you think rates could stay at 4%? Or if there's a more severe recession, might it be necessary for the ECB to uh, actually cut rates? I'm not anticipating a severe recession, uh, really. Uh, In spite of the numbers, I mentioned the numbers uh, point to uh, a mild uh, recession, which will be enough to help breaking the dynamic uh, of of core inflation, of course, which is uh, relevant. Um, So I think that uh, the ECB not necessarily would have to uh, quickly start reducing rates. And uh, very likely in terms of just uh, what one could expect, that the ECB would uh, keep the rates uh, at that level for a while, just to be sure, uh, until inflation really uh, comes down in all uh, respects. Uh, But with this prospect of uh, a a recession, even if uh, a mild one, 
uh, I think that uh, uh, in the second half uh, of uh, next year, we will see uh, inflation uh, really uh, going down by the end of next year, uh, you know, close to uh, 2% uh, already by the end of next year, if this scenario uh, will materialize and if the uh, ECB keeps uh, rates at the present level for, for quite a while. Thank you. You said that the Federal Reserve was late to raise rates. I believe the, the ECB hiked, started to hike rates after the Federal Reserve. Was the ECB itself uh, uh, late to hike rates? And can you speak as someone who you know, was formerly in that seat as vice president of the European Central Bank from 2010 to uh, 2018, does, is there a certain amount of pressure on the European Central Bank to uh, follow what the Federal Reserve does? If the Federal Reserve keeps interest rates at zero, we can keep interest rates at zero. If, if the Federal Reserve hiked, now the ECB may have a little bit of pressure to hike. Or is it solely focused on the uh, intra-euro area uh, monetary concerns and inflation? Yeah, well, it's not so simple. Um, well, in the first place, uh, of course, what the Fed does in view of the importance of the US economy in the world economy and the spillovers of whatever uh, the Fed does uh, to other countries, which are quite well known, of course, other central banks, uh, even uh, big central banks like the ECB, cannot totally ignore what the Fed is doing. The Fed is in command of the monetary and financial world cycle. Uh, and that's a fact um, that is well uh, illustrated. Uh, but that does not imply that other central banks or the ECB have to exactly copy uh, what, or even close copying what the, uh, the Fed is doing. Uh, well, take the example that the Fed uh, started QE in 2008 uh, and uh, the ECB only in 2015. So there was no following uh, at all uh, in that important uh, instrument that uh, in the end, of course, we had also to use uh, when inflation uh, became negative for a few months and the risks of deflation were increasing significantly. So uh, the, the importance of what the Fed does cannot be uh, ignored by others, but they don't have to copy. When I say, for instance, that the uh, Fed should have started before, I refer to the fact that in April 21, as I mentioned already, <laughs> inflation in the US was 4.1 and 1.6 in the euro area. In, in April, it was 5.4 in the US and 1.7 or 8 in the Euro area. So by then it was clear that an inflation process had started for domestic pressure reasons in the US, not for external price spikes that had not occurred significantly in the spring of 21. And in the Euro area, we had inflation below two. So no reason to think about any increases. Uh, and uh, uh, indeed, uh, the inflation only uh, went over 3% uh, in, uh, in Europe in September of uh, that year. Uh, and then uh, we didn't know, no one knew what will be uh, the development of the international prices. Uh, and of course, what changed the situation completely was the invasion of Ukraine in February uh, of 22, and that was a game changer. 
completely because the spike in food prices and oil was immediate and very, very sharp. Uh, and so uh, that's why I think the, uh, the ECB could have started increasing rates in April of 22 instead of July. Uh, but by then, the Fed uh, should have uh, had started uh, uh, increase uh, long before, uh, in my view. So you see, it's not linear, but uh, there is an influence because in third uh, point, uh, both reflects, uh, reflect what uh, is the world situation and inflation after the beginning of the Ukraine war was clear that uh, was a worldwide phenomenon. So uh, central banks had to act in the same direction. Uh, the European Central Bank, alongside the Bank of Japan, is noted for its adoption of negative interest rates, not just going to zero, but the, the price of money actually going negative. Uh, you know, as someone, again, again who, who was there at the time, could you describe the thinking of the, the European Central Bank in saying, you know, we uh, lowered interest rates to zero, but it's not enough. We have to go lower. Were you in favor of that, uh, those the proposals at the time that it happened? And in, in retrospect, you know, uh, it was a you know, decade uh, of history. Do you think that, uh, what were the learnings? Does it, uh, it works, but not as much as people think. Oh, it has, you know, very bad consequences. What do you think? About negative rates. Well, it happened initially uh, as a sort of inertia. Uh, as I said, we had, uh, in 2014, we began to have a few months with negative uh, inflation rates. The pressure was uh, big and the risks uh, were also uh, big. So in uh, June of 2014, we decreased the uh, main refinancing rate, the policy rate, to zero. And we operated a corridor system uh, with a deposit facility rate uh, below the main rate and a, a lending facility with a rate above the main rate. And so when we went to zero in the main rate, uh, automatically we had the uh, deposit facility rate negative at mine initially at minus uh, 10 basis points only and as uh, as a result of the general's policy of uh, liquidity provision to the banks there was excess reserves uh, in the system already then which led that the money market rate uh, became very close to the deposit facility rate which in practice became the real, uh, the actual policy rate, um, also by then. So indeed, uh, we started to have the, uh, the minus uh, 10 basis points. Uh, I went uh, on board with that initially because uh, it was necessary to lower rates and the corridor system led to that. Uh, um, uh, but later on, I uh, was not a big fan of continuing to uh, decrease uh, the deposit facility rate and going into more negative uh, territory. Um, I was uh, still uh, uh, am not uh, uh, convinced of the uh, efficiency of, of, of the measure, um, which uh, relies too much on the uh, uh, expectations uh, process 
to have an effect because the main idea was that by proving that the short term rates could go negative, that would have an, ex uh, an influence on the expectations for the medium and long term rates in the yield curve. And that in itself would be expansionary. Well, it relies too much uh, in the mechanism of expectations uh, for that uh, to really be totally efficient. And it creates, of course, other problems to financial calculus uh, to go negative uh, in a very visible way. So by this, you see that uh, initially I was uh, on board, but uh, I was not a fan of uh, going as negative as in the end the ECB went to minus 50 basis points. And, and that's because it just ceases to simulate once you go below zero or because there are side effects that are uh, not... Oh, well, there are side effects, uh, of course. The expansionary effects uh, are not as clear or as convincing the, the way I see it. Uh, and, and so uh, that was uh, and still is my uh, sentiment and my assessment uh, of the of the policy and i hope that uh, we won't have uh, any circumstances of uh, the same nature that would uh, uh, lead the uh, central banks to go there yeah, because so it was not just the ecb as you know mm -hmm. um, sweden sweden switzerland others uh, japan you mentioned and so on Right. And sort of the textbook uh, definition of how central banks can impact uh, inflation and, and the economy is high interest rates uh, discourage borrowing and they encourage saving money. So the lower interest rates go, the more stimulative that is. Um, you know, as you know, and you know, as, as viewers of the U.S. economy can know, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that because the U.S. economy has been very resilient. Rates are at 500 basis points. The stock market's on a tear. Uh, how would you say that that sort of simple theory uh, worked or didn't work or you know, was proven or was, was not proven throughout your long and tenured career? Well, uh, monetary policy, uh, meaning interest rate policy, uh, is very asymmetric. Uh, and history, uh, monetary history proves that uh, abundantly. Uh, meaning by that, that uh, uh, interest rate policy is not very effective to uh, uh, fight against recessionary phases in the economy. Uh, just going to zero or even negative does not per se stimulate, uh, for instance, investment. In that sort of recessive situation, investment is much more influenced by the expectation of firms about future demand. Uh, and so uh, the interest rates have not uh, a uh, uh, very visible effect on investment, uh, for instance. And that's what happened. And that's why uh, central banks had, uh, in the end, to use QE and other uh, instruments to try to uh, uh, push up inflation and normalize uh, our economies. Uh, in the end, nevertheless, uh, I mean, uh, showing that asymmetry, uh, monetary policy is in the end effective to fight uh, inflation because it can cool uh, the, uh, the economy uh, sufficiently to make uh, an impact on pricing uh, decisions. Um, so it's more effective uh, in that uh, scenario, but it takes time. 
And again, uh, if we look just isolated uh, uh, to the impact of uh, uh, interest rates on business investment decisions, uh, you cannot find really very obvious uh, uh, impact of just uh, interest rates on business investment uh, decisions, which again depend on other variables, again including uh, future growth uh, prospects uh, and then prospects of profits going forward uh, from the investments firms uh, would, would do. The main investment variable that reacts to uh, to uh, to interest rates uh, uh, increases uh, uh, is uh, mortgages and housing credit, uh, and it's very unusual what is going on just uh, right now. That uh, uh, in the U.S., uh, despite the mortgages being at seven percent or something like that, uh, there is not yet a uh, a, a, a very visible uh, cool-off uh, of the housing sector. There was during a period, but there was the rebound in May, and it's still ongoing. Uh, so that's very unusual historically uh, and difficult, by the way, to, to explain. Uh, really difficult because it's not uh, about the excess savings that were accumulating and are about to disappear in the US and have already disappeared uh, in Europe, um, that can explain such a, a, a phenomenon. So, uh, uh, but normally it's the variable that responds most to uh, the increase in interest rates, and indeed the, the housing sector, including uh, non-residential, uh, also uh, in the same uh, um, group. Uh, is very important to the dynamic of our economies. And uh, if it goes down significantly, it pushes down many other uh, industries. Uh, and it's a big contribution to a more uh, recessionary phase, which then will uh, lead to uh, low inflation. Uh, but again, it's not working as effectively as uh, it has worked uh, in the past right now. Not so much in Europe where we have now, uh, on average, housing prices going down. Uh, and going down, uh, even in Germany uh, and other Central European countries, where housing credit is uh, uh, done at uh, uh, fixed rates. Uh, and which means that the impact of the recent increases uh, is not immediately felt uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the payments that all the, uh, the, the borrowers um, will have to face in other countries where the housing credit uh, uh, rates are indexed to uh, more short-term uh, rates. But even in Germany and Central European countries, now the price of housing is going down, uh, showing that there is indeed an effect which will uh, continue and even uh, will be aggravated by the, the coming uh, recession. So uh, in that sense, uh, monetary policy uh, in, in the euro area is being effective uh, in uh, already that uh, cooling off of the construction sector uh, in general, more so than, uh, than in the US. 
Uh, and that's uh, the, the usual way that monetary policy can be effective uh, to uh, to fight uh, inflation, because then other uh, types of credit, uh, including consumer credit, uh, uh, will also be affected because consumers will tend to postpone the uh, uh, purchase of durable goods that sometimes uh, they use credit to do uh, and they postpone uh, and uh, that's the effect of the higher rates that will not stay uh, as high forever. Thank you. Uh, one potential explanation for the resilience of the U.S. housing economy is, as, as you said, in, in the U.S., it's so much a uh, fixed rate and it's 30-year mortgages to a very long duration. So, so many people you know, borrowed money at 3%. And uh, the, so the rise, now that you can get a mortgage at 7%, it's much more expensive. They said, oh, well, I already locked it in. And in, in Germany, you said it's a fixed rate, but is it a shorter duration? Because I know the 30-year mortgage duration for the U.S. is actually quite rare globally. And then so uh, you know, a lot of countries in Europe, as you said, I, I'm, it's my understanding, have, as you said, variable mortgages. So every single time the ECB raises rates or every time the mortgage rate goes up, their, their costs go up. Well, uh, I'm not sure about the uh, maturities for Germany, but certainly is long maturities. Uh, if not 30, it's 15 or 20. Uh, so that's okay. for sure. Uh, but what it shows, and it's important also for, for the case of the US, is that the uh, uh, new demand for new mortgages uh, has gone down in Europe, uh, even if it is fixed rate then for many, many years to come. Uh, so the existing borrowers are not suffering so much, but the uh, number of new borrowers to, for housing uh, has decreased. And so there is no increase in the demand for housing and then for construction. What is uh, surprising in the US is that, is that this new demand for new mortgages is not uh, uh, cooling off as much as it should with mortgage rates at seven uh, at seven percent, and that impacts, of course, uh, the uh, prices, the housing prices, uh, prospects, and the whole prospects for for the sector. So. Uh, it is, uh, in that uh, sense, uh, working uh, in Europe and right now not so much uh, in, in the US, but it will because uh, that's another thing. The uh, monetary policy takes time to produce effect and uh, 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 with these rates and if the Fed uh, continues to increase them as it seems uh, uh, likely right now, uh, the, that effect on the housing sector will be the first to be really felt. Uh, of course, in the US, uh, manufacturing is also weak. There is a sort of worldwide uh, recession in manufacturing. Uh, it's affecting more Europe than, uh, than the US, but uh, it's also affecting the US because the PMIs for manufacturing are well below 50 also uh, in the US. So you were governor of the Bank of Portugal uh, throughout the 2000s. I, I love, yes. you know, I've, I've read a little bit about just, you know, what what it was like to for central banks reaction function uh, during the 2008 great financial crisis and a lot about the Federal Reserve, but I, I don't know a lot about uh, the sort of European central, central bankers. What was the sense going into 2007 and how much kind of was it a, a really big surprise? Just, you know, if, if you can, if you feel comfortable, mm -hmm. uh, you, what, what was that period like? 
Well, 2007, uh, well, the, uh, the crisis was uh, not uh, really in the radar of uh, many central bankers uh, in Europe. Uh, well, uh, some uh, were more attentive because there were two facts in 2007 that were relevant. Uh, because we already had uh, in 2007 uh, Bear Stearns. Uh, we also had the Paribas uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Europe that led the ECB to provide a, a very sizable amount of liquidity all of a sudden uh, to the markets. Uh, and so there were already uh, signs uh, of, uh, of that. There were uh, different views uh, about what was coming. I, at the time, I was on the camp of those who thought that the... Uh, the situation uh, in the U.S. was worse than uh, even also the Fed at that time uh, portrayed, and that was proved totally, totally right, um, because it was not just the 200 billion of the subprime that counted for that uh, analysis. So 2008, uh, everything became uh, clearer, uh, although um, we have a very... We had a very controversial decision, uh, to say the least, in July of 2008 when the ECB increased rates uh, at that time. Um, so uh, that was uh, uh, very controversial, as I uh, just, uh, just said, because by then the sites uh, of uh, coming crisis that would come, of course, uh, to Europe uh, also in a big way, uh, coming from the U.S., but affecting, uh, to start with, the European banks that were invested in many assets in the U.S., uh, including uh, CDO tranches and so on and so on, uh, that these would be transmitted to Europe, as indeed it, 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 it did uh, after Lehman, uh, which uh, came in September. So in October, we totally changed policy uh, then of 2008. Uh, but uh, with insight, of course, at least with insight, uh, even perhaps more than that, the increase uh, in the summer of 2008 was not justified at that time. Um, so, but many uh, institutions also were surprised. Uh, take, for instance, the case of the uh, of the IMF uh, that was in unlucky in publishing in the summer of 2007, a chapter praising securitization as the big thing that would take care of financial risk uh, in a, a big way because it diversified uh, investors and everything. And then <laughs> very quickly after that, we saw what happened to, uh, to securitization uh, in the US. Uh, so, uh, of course, it was uh, it was uh, a general surprise. Uh, in Europe, there weren't uh, so many um, special purpose vehicles, uh, and and outside the outside the balance sheet, as in the case of the US. So there was no awareness uh, of that phenomenon, which was uh, important, uh, of course, uh, uh, in the crisis and the so-called shadow banking never. Had in Europe the expression, the size, the importance that it had in in the U.S. Right, and a, a lot of those toxic assets, I'd say most of them, came from. 
the the U.S. and but they were on a lot of the balance sheets of European banks to a considerable degree. Yeah. Is it surprising in retrospect that given that the epicenter of the financial crisis was U.S. subprime mortgage crisis, that coming out of the great financial crisis, the U.S. banking system uh, actually you know, recovered uh, somewhat. It, it took a while, whereas the European banking system, I mean, you know, folks can just look at a, a basket of the, you know, the yeah. stock market of European banks. It's been a quite, quite a struggle. Uh, is, that, is that surprising? Again, given that the, the epicenter of the you know, mortgage crisis was those toxic assets from the U.S., uh, and, and what might ex- explain that in your view? Well, what explains it, of course, is that uh, in Europe we went into a, a, a second deep recession uh, because the financial crisis uh, made possible uh, that the markets started to uh, suspect that perhaps some weaker countries in Europe would not uh, really be able to sustain the pressure of being members of a monetary union uh, with a common currency, a common exchange rate, and all of that. Uh, And so uh, the pressure on uh, uh, government bonds of uh, several countries started to create the risk of uh, so-called redenomination, or to be more explicit, that uh, one or two countries in the end would have to leave uh, the monetary union. And that was... This pressure for fragmentation was the cause of the uh, second recession that we started more explicitly uh, in 2012-13. But it started indeed already before when uh, um, the uh, bond market of several countries were were in severe pressure with yields going up uh, enormously. Uh, with that, uh, with all the consequences that uh, that had on activity, and some countries started recessions uh, before the general recession of uh, uh, late 11, 12, 13. So that, of course, uh, created a very difficult situation for the banks with this second recession, and the uh, non non performing loans increased uh, also enormously, and attaining the peak precisely in 2013. From then on, they have been going down and now are in low numbers uh, by now. But uh, uh, in 13, it was the peak of NPLs and uh, very uh, bad profitability of the banks and all that. So that didn't exist anywhere else, only in our case, because we had a monetary union of uh, many uh, sovereign countries uh, before, uh, which were sufficiently heterogeneous to start these uh, suspicions and uh, pressures uh, on their national uh, bond markets from the uh, world market uh, in general. So we had very specific reasons for that different development. Uh, also, uh, in a way, uh, there were also there was there were also there is perhaps two other reasons. One was uh, that. Uh, um, the reaction immediately to the 2008-9 crisis uh, did not uh, really lead with the same uh, depth to uh, recapitalize uh, the European banks. It was more difficult because fiscal space was uh, uh, lower already at that time, so it didn't happen in the same scale. It happened 
later through the market after uh, we stabilized the situation in uh, in uh, in 15 uh, and now we have uh, the banks with very high uh, capital ratios and a totally different totally different situation in all respects but it took some time uh, and the other reason was that uh, um, as a result of those pressures uh, in 2010 11 fiscal policy became very restrictive in Europe and was uh, as a great responsibility in the recession that we had then, the second recession we had then, uh, late 11, 12, 13. Uh, so this also marks a difference to what happened uh, in the US, always more agile uh, to use uh, fiscal policy uh, when needed to stabilize the economy. Right. And so now in the U.S., the, the U.S. had some rather high profile bank failures, such as you know, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Signature Bank, a lot of that tied to you know, uh, very flighty, chunky deposits and then unrealized losses on their securities book. How would you estimate the health of the European banking system? Uh, I mean, would you say well, broadly it's healthy, but there are some things you're concerned about? And then also, could you perhaps explain um, the, you know, the, the fall of, of Credit Suisse a, a few months ago, which... I'm sure, I'm sure our, our viewers would love, would love to hear your take on. Yeah. Okay, there is a big difference. Uh, in the first place, we apply Basel III uh, criteria to all banks. All banks. In the US, after the change in 2018, Basel III, uh, in terms of capital, liquidity ratios, and all the rest of it, well, not all, but uh, most of it, uh, it's applied only to banks that uh, have a balance sheet over 200 billion. Uh, in Europe, we apply to all banks. And as I said, uh, we had uh, in the banking sector very high non-performing loans in 2013. They have come down and uh, uh, the situation uh, of the banks changed completely. Now we have tier one capital ratios of uh, over 15 on average. We have uh, uh, we have uh, uh, a uh, leverage ratio uh, which is uh, well above five uh, uh, on average, and so it's much higher in many countries. Uh, and so the situation uh, is uh, indeed uh, quite solid. Also, we have the liquidity ratios uh, well well above the uh, regulatory minimum that is uh, defined by uh, Basel III legislation. Uh, so the situation is, uh, in that uh, respect, uh, uh, very different. We don't have the same flight of deposits that uh, is happening uh, in the US. Our broad aggregate, uh, our broad monetary aggregate uh, M3 is not going down, whereas in the US, the M2 uh, is going down, reflecting that decrease uh, in deposits. It's not uh, the case uh, in Europe, perhaps because we don't have so many alternatives uh, to deposits as uh, in the US, um, including the opening that the, US, the Fed did to non-banks to their own reverse repo facility, which allows uh, money market funds and others to uh, place, um, place money with the central bank uh, at more than 5% uh, remuneration. 
so uh, all that has made a difference between uh, the US uh, and, uh, and, and Europe. Uh, I think it was a mistake what the U.S. did in 2018 by uh, increasing uh, very much the uh, minimum the threshold to apply the whole of Basel III. Um, there is a potential problem uh, also in Basel III uh, with the issue of the uh, uh, so-called portfolio that can be uh, held to maturity by the banks uh, where they don't have to mark to market like in the trading book or in the available for sale uh, uh, portfolios um, uh, supervision has the powers to uh, be vigilant about that but it's not uh, regulatorily uh, banks can do it and uh, by the way the uh, take the case of the uh, svb and in my view, to, from all that I have read, they were complying with all the regulation that was applied to them. It was legal for them to have any size of the health to maturity uh, portfolio. It was legal. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, risky and uh, they should not have done it uh, in the same way, but it was legal according to the regulation. So they were not at fault with the regulation. Also, in their case, because of their size, they had been exempted uh, of uh, reflecting the mark-to-market of the available for sale portfolio into the balance sheet, into the capital uh, account, uh, and so on and so on. So it was, but again, uh, they were complying with the regulation, but they were being very imprudent, uh, of course. That uh, again marks a difference uh, with uh, with Europe, where that could not have happened uh, in terms of we apply to all banks, including small ones, uh, the Basel III uh, standards, uh, and so. And the, the ECB has competence and supervises uh, all the European banks that have balance sheets above thirty billion. Thirty billion. Um, so uh, the situation right now uh, is uh, is really robust, as uh, what the market reaction uh, show, uh, in a way, prove that uh, that they have not been so much under pressure uh, the European banks as uh, in other cases. The Credit Suisse uh, was uh, uh, again a different case. Um, the, the Credit Suisse was a long-standing uh, problem uh, that should have, should have been resolved long before and was not. They were, they were able to uh, in, uh, um, inject more and more capital, uh, and those who did it uh, didn't really analyze the situation because they, have, they had very low profitability for decades. They were destroying value at a pace that is staggering. Their uh, total capitalization, uh, say 20 years ago, was something like uh, 80 billion or something like that. And uh, when uh, the situation uh, then collapsed, they were at uh, 6 uh, billion only. So it was absolutely staggering uh, what uh, happened to that bank without anyone uh, doing much and uh, investors uh, continue to uh, to provide uh, capital 
Um, so, uh, in the end, uh, the situation after the SPB and others led the market to put a huge pressure on liquidity of the credit suisse. And uh, they could not really find uh, investors to increase capital or other sources of liquidity. Well, they had help from the central bank, but it was not enough. So the situation then uh, finally collapsed after a long-standing process that should have been dealt with long, long before. Um, yeah, so that was the very specific case of uh, Credit Suisse. Mm, thank you. You're absolutely right about Silicon Valley Bank, that it was in complete compliance uh, yeah. with the regulations. Uh, its yeah. capital ratio was, was yeah. above the threshold, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was exempted from that additional Basel yeah. III. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know that that uh, all European banks are subject to that Basel, and they don't make exemptions for the, you know, not the non one, but do they do they in Europe do they uh, allow for the same held to maturity uh, duration thing that uh, Silicon Valley Bank ha- had? It's in in Basel III. The text does not put a limit to the size of the uh, held to maturity uh, uh, portfolio. That's true. Uh, and also, Basel III text does not require a mandatory obligation for the banks to edge uh, that uh, against uh, bad uh, interest rate developments. So that is the regulation. But there is another thing, which is that uh, all the banks, uh, and in particular, of course, uh, those supervised by the ECB, but not only those, are subject Outside of the general system of stress tests, every year, the banks have to provide an exercise of increasing interest rates by 200 basis points and show what would be the effect, regardless of being held to maturity or not. It's an exercise for the whole balance sheet. Uh, and which means that the supervisors uh, are uh, immediately... Uh, aware if they would not have done the calculation themselves, but the banks have to do it, uh, it's obligatory. Uh, and that, again, it's a difference with uh, what happened uh, in the US. So we, you don't find at all uh, situations uh, close to uh, the situation of S- uh, SVB and all uh, second one would not on the same scale, but it was also affected by, by that. Uh, you don't find uh, in Europe uh, such banks for for these reasons. Um, yeah. Also, uh, the uh, the portfolios that are available for sale have to be mark to market. There are no exemptions, uh, and uh, if there is a loss, it goes directly to the to the capital of the bank because it goes to the balance sheet. In the trading book, goes to the profit and loss account. In the available for sale goes directly to the balance sheet to capital. So very different, and the US I think has to tighten a little bit uh, the regulation of banks that nevertheless are uh, significant. Very interesting. Well, Vitor, thank you so much for for joining Forward Guidance. Um, my, my final question for you is. You were working at the, the Bank of Portugal, I, b- I believe, during the 1970s. And the 1970s, in the U.S., we had what we think of as very high inflation. But in, in Portugal, it, it was incredibly high. Um, 
40 percent 50 percent you tell no, us no no, but, no not not so much but okay yeah, so yeah, yeah, it, it, it was that the, for like one quarter yeah that, oh, it, it was not sustainably not that for that high yeah yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. tell us the, the data i i don't know sure, but sure. what was that like you know working as a central banker where you know, one of your prime goals is to limit inflation and inflation is is so high like you just compare that period to now where you know people say six percent inflation is high and it is it's way too high but it's not you know as high as it was in the 1970s well initially i was uh, working in the research department uh, of the uh, of the central bank and it was only in 77 that i became vice uh, governor so in a decision making uh, position not uh, through not throughout the 70s. But uh, the main thing uh, in our case was that we had a uh, political revolution in 74 uh, when the military staged a coup to end the colonial wars and uh, the system started to change from a dictatorship uh, to a democracy. And that explosion, of course, was uh, enormous in terms of uh, unsustainable wage increases. Everything uh, went up. Uh, and so the inflation was uh, triggered and fed by that explosion uh, after the 74 revolution. On top of what was uh, happening to oil and everything else in all the other countries, of course. Uh, so that explains the very high inflation rates that we had for a while. Uh, by 77, they had subsided. They were not at all at uh, those uh, those levels, but still uh, still high, of course. Uh, well, interest rates uh, were were uh, increased. In particular, we had uh, in 78, I became finance minister, uh, and uh, I had to negotiate a standby agreement with the IMF because we had a balance of payments problem. And in that uh, uh, agreement, uh, we had to increase interest rates by five percentage points, uh, which uh, surprisingly did not create a, 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 a recession that was uh, very visible, but corrected the, um, the balance of payments. Uh, Sorry, a five percent increase over the course of a year or in one meeting or? Well, uh, in two meetings, uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Wow, because those are the, the old school days. That's how. Yeah. No, it was the result of the the, the standby agreement with the uh, with the Fed, uh, with the Fed, with the IMF. Ah. Uh, so uh, that was uh, one of the conditions uh, for for the standby. So uh, you see uh, that uh, that happened then, uh, and then of course inflation uh, came down. Uh, uh, in 78, 79, we didn't have a uh, recession. Uh, there was a deceleration of growth, uh, significant, but not, uh, not uh, a recession. So that's the way we went through uh, that uh, the, the very troubled 70s. Uh, in our case, uh, in inflation terms and economic terms, disturbed also by a revolution and a big political change. That it was, of course, uh, very good in terms of uh, having democracy, uh, uh, which quickly stabilized uh, until uh, until today. Uh, but of course, uh, unavoidably, it had initial uh, uh, social and political uh, and economic uh, consequences. Uh, 
Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, people could find you on Twitter at VMR Constancio. And I should also say you are the president of the Council of ISEG at the University of Lisbon, as well as the professor at uh, Navarro University at the Master's School in Madrid. Uh, Vitor, thank you so much for joining us and thank yeah. you everyone for watching. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.